It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For weeks, the constant drip, drip of Downing Street lockdown party fines It sounded like someone accidentally knocked over a bottle of wine at a work event. Number 10 is now one of the most fined addresses in the country. So far, it's received more than 100 fixed penalties. To counter the constant coverage of law-breaking, the Prime Minister's supporters have been trying to push a counter-story. Sir Keir Starmer is facing further questions over the incident now known as Beergate. Labour insists there's nothing to see here. For 12 days, Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer played it down. The lockdown meal at a constituency office last April was a work event. It was allowed under the rules, he said. But then the police said they were investigating it after all. And last week, Starmer decided to stake his leadership on it. For me, this is an in-principle position. Um, No rules are broken. I'm absolutely clear about that. But in the event that I'm wrong about that and I get a fixed penalty notice... I will do the right thing and step down. Will this move backfire? And what does it tell us about the man who wants to be the next PM? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald, sitting in for Manveen Rana. Today, Keir Starmer's biggest gamble. Are you well? Is everything okay? I'm alright, yeah. Surviving. Good, that's good. Let's chat about Keir, shall we? Yeah, let's. My name is Patrick Maguire, I'm Redbox editor of The Times, and I also am one of the co-authors of Left Out, The Inside Story of Labour Under Corbyn, which is a book that deals with the rise of Keir Starmer as much as it does the fall of Corbyn. Of the two main party leaders, it's normally Boris Johnson who's portrayed as the risk-taker. There's a whole Boris biography, in fact, titled The Gambler. But have we been reading his rival all wrong? Today, as well as examining the Beergate story, we're looking at Sir Keir Starmer through the lens of his big bets. Does he know when to hold them? Know when to fold them? Does he know when to walk away and when to run? It's a useful way of seeing Keir Starmer because he's made a series of gambles. Remember, this is a man who arrived in Parliament in his mid-50s, much later than people with leadership ambitions usually do. He had a whole professional life behind him. He had very limited experience in electoral politics, if at all. 
He'd only been a member of the Labour Party for a few months when he was selected as a parliamentary candidate. So that was a gamble. Coming into politics after a long career in the law was a gamble. Joining Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet after everybody else quit, becoming his shadow Brexit secretary was a big gamble. You're gambling your credibility there. Then as shadow Brexit secretary, becoming the face of Labour's Remain policy, pushing for a second referendum, that was a gamble, both in terms of internal party politics and the politics of the country. And Corbynites would say, well, it's a gamble that clearly didn't pay off because Labour was absolutely clobbered in seats that voted to leave and it's leave heartlands. Then he gambled running for the leadership on a platform that was substantially sort of continuity Corbyn. Whatever the readout on Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn cannot be the cause of the loss of the last four uh, elections. So we've got to go a bit deeper than this. That was a gamble. He didn't know whether the membership would trust him as a person they could look at and say, well, he is not from Jeremy Corbyn's tradition, but is he the man to carry on his work? Then he gambled on expelling Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party. I made it clear that we won't tolerate anti-Semitism or the denial of anti-Semitism through the suggestion that it's exaggerated or factional. And that's why I was disappointed with Jeremy Corbyn's response. The Labour Party had become a mass membership party under Jeremy Corbyn, 500,000 members. They're all, to a large extent, infused by Jeremy Corbyn's brand of politics. He was, in effect, declaring war on the people who funded his organisation. That was a big gamble. And then now he is taking the biggest gamble of his career, taking the sobriety, probity, integrity stuff that he labours, if you'll pardon the pun, labours those points all the time in comparison with Boris Johnson. The reality is that we now have the shameful spectacle of a Prime Minister of the United Kingdom being subject to a police investigation. Unable to lead the country, incapable of doing the right thing, and every day his cabinet failed to speak out, they become more and more complicit. He's taken a massive gamble in saying he will resign if he's fined by Durham Police. That's the biggest gamble of them all. But if you look at his history... It's a consistent pattern. And people who know and work with Keir Starmer, as much as we think, yes, he's a diverer, once he has decided on a point of action, people say Keir Starmer is a very steely and ruthless man. And that's what we're seeing now. This is a matter of principle and honour for me. It's about who I am, what I stand for. And I stand for honour and integrity and the belief that uh, politics is a force for good and we shouldn't all be dragged down by this cynical belief that all politicians are the same. And I'm here to make it clear that I am not the same. It's so interesting because when he held his press conference, when he said he would resign if he does get a fine from the police, there was one viral tweet almost immediately after that said, this is the most exciting thing he's ever done, but it's still quite boring. (laughs) Uh, What what was your own reaction? Do you share that view? (laughs) I think Keir Starmer is a man, as much as, by the way, he had a reputation as a bit of a heartthrob and a hellraiser at the bar in his 20s and 30s, is a man who could make anything boring. A legal contemporary once had a very good way of expressing this. He was a man who judges loved but always struggled with juries, and I think that's a a fair assessment of his style as an orator. He's not a tub-thumper, he is a very measured man. And whether that's what you want in a political leader and a, a rallier of the troops is another question. The sobriety in the flatness of the delivery as much as I think it was quite good by the standards of Keir Starmer's oratory one of his better performances I think it's a measure of the man he is and the politician he is in that the integrity stuff as people who were in the room with him as he made that decision on Monday morning told me it's not a shtick 
it is him. You know, he's a man who's, for better or worse, regardless of his record, spent his entire life in in public service, and he feels this very deeply. And people who spoke to him on the phone over the weekend, as he was undergoing the very protracted, some would say too protracted, process of trying to work out whether he should do this, said they found a very crestfallen man, a man who was deeply personally wounded by the fact he was being tarred with the same brush as Boris Johnson and found himself under investigation by the police as a former director of public prosecutions and a man who had made integrity his watchword. So I think the sort of solemnity of his delivery and the relentless, intense seriousness of Keir Starmer tells you a lot about how he sees the world and how he sees himself. I think at this point it'd be good actually just to consider Beergate itself, what it actually is alleged, what is being aimed at, at Keir Starmer here, and indeed what Labour's response to the whole thing has been, which, as you say, they've kind of found it plainly ridiculous. So let's start with what nobody disputes. Keir Starmer was campaigning in Durham ahead of the local elections in 2021. Labour had a parliamentary by-election in Hartlepool, which was nearby. He spent the day in the northeast campaigning, and that evening he went to the uh, Miners' Hall in Durham, which is a Labour constituency. He then hosted a Zoom fundraiser for members and, according to Labour aides, was doing other work. Then this is where the accounts diverge. If you're Keir Starmer, you say... We're in the office, working in the office, um, and we stopped for a takeaway and then we carried on working. And that is the long and the short of it. We were working late. It's about nine o'clock. We stopped working, waited for a curry... The curry was late, I sipped a beer, had the curry, went back to work. If you are other people in the room who dispute that version of events, or if you're a Tory MP who's trying to land blows. This is a man who has spent the last two or three months talking about nothing but Partygate, talking about how other people should resign if they get a fixed penalty notice. Actually, I think in all that time, he knew what he'd done. He knew he'd been to some curry, well, some drink fueled curry event with apparently as many as 30 other people. This is what the police are trying to get to the bottom of. He finished work and then a purely social curry for about 30 people at which several people were drunk happened then, what you might call a party. And the test is, was what happened reasonably necessary for work purposes? Starmer's version of events is, yes, I needed to eat. We've been on the road all day. There's an itinerary that was leaked in the mail on Sunday that says an aide of Keir Starmer was to order a curry at nine o'clock from a specific takeaway. Keir Starmer says, yes, that's because we had to eat and we continued working. We were working on you know, scripts for the next day, video clips. His detractors, critics, sources of this story say absolutely not. It was a knees up and no work continued afterwards. This is a note that confirms the last scheduled event of the day was a curry and beer with the campaigning team after a long day of work. After the dinner, it simply lists a short walk back to the hotel and confirms the end of the visit. In its entirety, it's gone from something that seemed to not really register very well or very highly with people. Then it kind of got hammered, as it were, and all of a sudden it became almost laughable and jokey, and then, but actually then it became quite serious, and the police are suddenly reinvestigating things. And there have been various twists and turns which have been perhaps confusing in terms of trying to identify how serious this is, both in reality as a potential breach of rules and laws, and also politically. I think that's a key difference. Nobody, not even the Conservative Party, as much as 
they are trying to do, draw a degree of equivalence. That's the point, to muddy the waters when MPs, journalists and the public think and talk about Boris Johnson's own problems with parties. It's absurd to suggest there is a degree of equivalence between what at the worst is a single breach of the rules by the leader of the Labour Party and some staff and a persistent culture of rule breaking in Downing Street. That's the sort of legal piece, right? And then obviously, politically, it's a rough lesson for Keir Starmer. He didn't realise or was blindsided by the intensity of media pressure. You know, when you have the Daily Mail, Conservative cabinet ministers, Conservative MPs, relentlessly, day after day after day, plugging away at this. He's the only person who said, we're right and you're wrong and you should resign. And it turns out, it's not true. Beer Starmer's been at it like the rest of them. The Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, has told, well, what most of us would call a lie again and again. I suspect, too, when the full detail comes out about what happened in Durham, people will think that sounds much more like a social gathering than Boris in the cabinet room for nine minutes. Rishi Sunak, I think, was in there for two minutes. And his biggest, biggest mistake, in my view, was saying that the Chancellor should resign, too. He was surprised by this, even as someone who's been in politics for the thick end of a decade now. He was taken aback by the brute force of it all. But I think the most worrying thing for the Labour Party... Even if Keir Starmer gets off, I think people are overlooking in the in all the jokes you say about curry and beer and korma police and you know we could go back and forth all day on the puns. The lesson for the Labour Party here is an uncomfortable one in that you've had a leader who has wilted under pressure. Yes, he eventually arrived at a point where he could sort of shut the story down. But the reason this story had the oxygen it did wasn't just because of the Daily Mail, wasn't just because of Tory MPs and Cabinet Minister. It was because in the face of questioning about a story most people in the Labour Party think is ridiculous, Keir Starmer evaded, obfuscated, didn't have the deafness or fleetness of foot to answer in grasp the bull by the horns politically. No doubt he's a great lawyer, great advocate, great bureaucrat. The question is, is he a deft politician? And you have to say a defter politician would perhaps have been able to dodge, weave, handle the questioning he came under, particularly the week before it all came to a head. He was interviewed on Times Radio, the Today programme, Sky News, and really struggled. You haven't answered my question, which is about contact from uh, Durham Police. Have there been any contact with you or, or the office in recent weeks? The police looked at this months ago and um, it came to a clear conclusion that was uh, no rules were broken. And that's because no rules were broken. Not quite. All the I rest asked. I just wondered if they've been back in touch since the, since the you know, local MPs have been raising questions about it. Well, look, um, they've already concluded their investigation. It wasn't particularly hostile questioning, but his poor answers and evasive performances did, sadly, give the story more oxygen. And that's a hard lesson for the Labour Party. They have a, a leader who is still politically pretty inexperienced. In terms of the behind-the-scenes kind of nature, then, of, of Keir Starmer arriving at his decision to say that he will go if he is fined. You've already given us a little bit of insight into the kind of the conversations that were going on over that weekend and the easy criticism is how long it took. Um, what is your insight into why it took so long? What was going on? It was on Monday morning that me and my colleague Henry Zethman, Times Associate Political Editor, got the scoop that Keir Starmer was going to do this and that's the point at which aides had basically reached the decision that he, they were 99% of the way there. But the story didn't start on the Monday morning when it became public. It started on the Friday, which was when 
Keir Starmer, who his dander was up, he was enjoying a pretty good set of local election results for Labour the preceding day, found out from a journalist tweet, a journalist at the Daily Telegraph, that he was being investigated by Durham police. At which point, his immediate instinct, people who were with him and people who were close to him, say, was to offer the pledge he eventually did, which was to say, unlike Boris Johnson, if fined, and if I'm found to have broken the law, I will go. And then you might ask, well, hang on, if that was his instinct, then why did we then wait 72 hours? Well, a number of reasons. The first are practical. He was set to go to uh, Loch Lomond to celebrate Labour coming second in the Scottish local elections, didn't want to cancel that. Then on Sunday, there was an even more pressing matter. Arsenal were playing Leeds at the Emirates and Keir Starmer is an Arsenal season ticket holder, so he couldn't miss that. Only then, on Sunday afternoon, did he start seeking the counsel of close shadow cabinet ministers, close aides. He'd been in conversation with the Labour Party's internal legal staff too. So only by Monday morning in his offices in Westminster, the leader of the opposition's lovely, well, no one would say going inside it's lovely, it looks like a provincial Blackpool guest house, but it's got a lovely view <laughs> over the Thames and a lovely balcony. He gathered an even smaller group of people to sort of confirm this course of action. Why did it take so long? Yes, practicality, but also I think the consultation element that's key to Keir Starmer. He's deliberative. He likes to seek lots of individual opinions to build, almost build a case as a lawyer would, which is a great way of governing, arguably. But if you're in opposition, you're in campaign mode permanently. You have to be nimble. You have to be quick, is what critics of Keir Starmer would say. And arguably, just as Jeremy Corbyn wasn't built for the demands of making quick executive decisions, neither is Keir Starmer. For months since Partygate broke and Downing Street's been up against that, Keir Starmer has, uh, to use your, the magic three words, it's unlike Boris Johnson, has been the strategy the whole way through since Partygate became a thing. Um, notably, he then eventually started calling for Boris Johnson to resign, which is quite a big political move as well, a political gamble, one might argue as well. Mm. I just wonder how big a gamble that was. Unlike Boris Johnson, there are three words that explain... Labour's pitch to the country at the minute. The, one of the most illuminating conversations I've ever had, and it's helped me understand how the Labour Party under Keir Starmer works, was with a um, very senior Labour figure who is close to Keir Starmer a few months ago. And at that time, Labour was struggling in the polls, behind the Tories. You say, well, hang on, what's the plan? Because it doesn't seem... It's not going disastrously, but it's not going terribly well. And they said... We have to believe at some point the country will want what we are offering, which is what Keir is, a sober, diligent, restrained, competent, decent man. All the adjectives you probably wouldn't use to describe Boris Johnson. So in the absence of any big policy offer or dynamism or Arguably, I don't want to be too mean, but a compelling performative personality on Keir Starmer's part, the Labour Party has had to go down a road where it emphasises his qualities, which do play off very well against Boris Johnson, particularly in the aftermath of Partygate. But it's a very narrow offer. If you make the gamble that is calling for Boris Johnson to resign, the ultimate gamble you can make, because ultimately, if they don't do it, you look impotent and you also leave yourself vulnerable to calls in the opposite direction. If you can pin anything on that person, even a, a shred of hypocrisy, then you end up in the situation you are now, which is not an ideal one for Keir Starmer to be in. 
if, if the gamble pays off, it's emphasised all those qualities and it's the making of him. But if it doesn't, then he's resigned over not very much. Coming up, will it pay off? And if it doesn't, what then? But first... I'm Megan Agnew. I'm a commissioning editor and writer at the Sunday Times magazine. I organise and write interviews with politicians, stroppy heartthrob actors who absolutely don't want to be there, authors, artists and features on a whole range of issues. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's um, consider then, so there's a whole list of gambles that we're referring to here, which is really intriguing because until you lay them out, you perhaps, as you said, you don't particularly realise that there's actually a consistent pattern of Keir Starmer really going for it. Um, Perhaps we should go back to when he became Labour leader after Corbyn's 2019 general election defeat. Has he always been consistent in that messaging of integrity, of honesty? And also, I'm just wondering, while he positions himself now as not being Boris Johnson. Isn't it notable that his his campaign to be leader was, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn? (laughs) It's all about who he's not. That's a good point. And the Jeremy Corbyn thing, basically, Labour's pitch to the country now is, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, i.e. the Labour Party is what you might call sensible. My vision for Britain is simple. I want this to be the best country to grow up in and the best country to grow old in. A country in which we put family first. A country that embodies the values I hold dear. Decency, fairness, opportunity, compassion and security. Be that on the economy, be that on defence, be that on you know, more nebulous, emotive questions of um, patriotism and nation, right? We're not the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn anymore. We're dealing with the anti-Semitism problem. Those are all the messages Keir Starmer wants to land. And also, as we've discussed, I'm not Boris Johnson. I'm a decent bloke. But yes, his Labour leadership campaign in 2020, yes, it was about, you know, using his history as a campaigning left-wing barrister to woo the membership and prove that he had the same values as them. Ultimately, at its heart, it was a fundamentally negative proposition, which is, I am not the man who, despite sharing these values with you, i.e. Jeremy Corbyn, was a a bit of a clown, didn't, as David Cameron famously said, put on a proper suit, do up its tie and sing the national anthem. It was Corbyn without the problems. Keir Starmer is exactly the person you need. He was framing his own assets in a negative way.
on what could be a potential detour then for the Labour Party ahead of the next general election, if Starmer was to go, if he was to have to resign and be a man of his word and stand by his integrity and his big decision, who would take over? There are a handful of main candidates, and I'll run through them very quickly. Lisa Nandy, Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, I think is the candidate to beat. She, as one person put it very memorably in The Spectator yesterday, has the benefit of sounding more right-wing than Keir Starmer, but being more left-wing. And that leaves her in a good position both in the party and the country. She has very strong links with the trade unions who are essential to getting you on the ballot as a leadership contender. And there are lots of people in the Conservative Party who are worried that her very perceptive and prescient focus on the economic challenges facing small towns, what we now call the Red Wall, that and her media acumen and the fact that she is an intelligent northern woman would leave Boris Johnson struggling to know how to respond to her. Second candidate, if there is a messiah for the Blairites who now run Keir Starmer's office, it's uh, the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, 39 years old, Cambridge educated, Christian, openly gay. He is, in many ways, a candidate that they think can you know, bridge the gaps in Labour's coalition. The problem for West Streeting is an unapologetic champion of Tony Blair's government. And he lacks the sort of deep links on the left-dominated union movement that Lisa Nandy would. Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, is another obvious candidate from the right of the party. Lots of admirers, crucially is now in the room with Keir Starmer. You can never underestimate the power of being in the room when it comes to politics and leadership and is one of the authors of Labour's economic policy naturally is, has long been waiting for her time to come. It's going to be a bit of a bun fight between the middle and the right of the Labour Party. The left will struggle to get on the ballot. Oh, and of course, who could forget Angela Rayner, Sir Keir's deputy? I suppose then in terms of political strategy, we should consider something that is very real to everyone right now, and that is the cost of living rising. Over the last few months, we've really, really heard the drum being beaten on Partygate, also now on Beergate. That in itself is a big gamble, is it not, when there are very real financial difficulties facing millions of people, and that's what they want politicians to speak about and to deliver on. Yes, and you think that would be home turf for the Labour Party, who are a party that exists to champion the rights of working people, the low-paid and people who are striving and struggling to make ends meet, you think, well, this is manna from heaven from the Labour Party because it's a great dividing line with the Tories. But because Keir Starmer's mission and the mission of people around him is to restore the Labour Party to a degree of electoral credibility, they are quite wary about making big pledges on the economy because the Tories could then dismiss them as profligate, big spending, they want to borrow, they're going to bankrupt the country, all the attack lines you've heard ever before. They chose instead to draw this contrast with Boris Johnson, a personal contrast, make this a matter of integrity. And obviously you can join that up to an economic message in, in that you can argue, oh look, these clowns and these you know born-to-rule toffs spend so much time drinking suitcases full of wine and fixing COVID contracts for their mates. They don't have time to focus on the cost of living. But mostly we've just been banging on about parties and birthday cakes, etc., etc. And obviously, if that's the dominant you know, political theme, don't be surprised if the Conservative Party respond in kind. And there are certainly people in Keir Starmer's top team, Lisa Nandy, chief among them, she challenged him at the Shadow Cabinet on this, who say, well, look, why have we been talking about parties for weeks and weeks and weeks? It's Westminster Games. We should be talking about the cost of living and you know, our plans for a windfall tax on energy providers and how the Tories are doing very little. 
rather than making this all about parties because it means very little to most people, even if they're very angry about it. They've made their minds up that they're angry. It's now for us to make a positive offer. And some would say that strategy came back to bite them, that particular gamble misfired because now, obviously, Labour has its own party scandal and they legitimised the idea of banging on about party scandals in the first place. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Our guest today, Times Redbox editor Patrick Maguire. You can read more of Patrick's work at thetimes.co.uk or in the Times Redbox newsletter every weekday morning. The producers were James Shield, Edward Drummond and Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story that you think we should be covering or any ideas for a future episode or indeed your own thoughts on what you've just heard, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email. The email address is storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.